The reign of God is not announced to everyone. It is not proclaimed to all. The reign is destined for certain groups. It is theirs. It belongs to them. Only for them will it be a cause of joy. And according to Jesus' mind, the dividing line between joy and woe produced by the reign runs between the poor and the rich. That was Juan Luis Segundo, cited by John Sabrino in his essay, The Central Position of the Reign of God in Liberation Theology. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a close look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome back to the Liberation Theology Podcast. We have a great episode today. I'll be joined by Dr. Marcus Mesher, Professor of Theology at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I myself am. And together we discuss today John Sabrino's The Central Position of the Reign of God in Liberation Theology. It's a bit different from previous episodes with guests in the sense that it's more of a conversation. We first summarize the text, uh, Marcus explaining the first half, I take the second half, then we engage in some back and forth the question and answer, and then we finish with some application points, kind of taking a hint from other podcasts that follow the same great format. It's a great conversation, so we hope that you enjoy it. We'll start with Marcus Mesher's summary of the first half of the central position of the reign of God. This part of Sabrino's reflection on the central position of the reign of God is fascinating to me. And and I think it deserves just a little bit of context, if that's all right. I I didn't learn until graduate school why this term, the reign of God, was so significant in Jesus' own social context. But it helps to know that Jesus' context, he's he's living under Roman occupation. And so the term reign of God is also supposed to imply the effective presence of Yahweh, that wherever we are, that God's reign has already taken root. And for Sabrino, this is key to understanding the incarnation. And I think he's drawing here on the work of Karl Rahner, who describes the incarnation as God's irrevocable commitment to all humanity, this irreversible, unshakable act of solidarity, to be one with the human condition and the human community. And so for Sabrino, when he's describing the systematic concept of the reign of God, it's important that we think of this in terms of time more than place, which is maybe why reign of God is a better translation than the kingdom of God, because kingdom really does imply a place. It also is a gendered term, of course, in reference to a hierarchical king. So the reign of God is about the inbreaking of God's hope for creation that is initiated with the incarnation, that is fully God's initiative. And because of that, our posture in response should be one of gratitude and generosity. 
that we appreciate what God has done in history. And in that spirit of gratitude, then we respond as generously as we can. So to see Jesus as the embodiment of the reign of God, not just to bring about good news, but also to initiate a new society and a new creation. So I know in a little bit, we'll talk about implications for prayer and action. And I always think of, you know, when it comes to the reign of God, two passages, the, the first being the Beatitudes. I think the Beatitudes are markers for what it means to be partners with the reign of God. And also in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in the fifth chapter, he talks about whoever is in Christ is a new creation. And then to be this new creation means to be Christ's ambassadors for reconciliation. And Sabrina reflects on that line that we are a new creation and asserts then if that's true, that if we see the resurrection, not only as a historical event, but as initiating the inbreaking of the reign of God that continues to pervade the present, this permanent and prevailing effect of the inbreaking of God's hope for a new society and a new creation, then Sabrino says we should live now already as risen beings as this new creation because of the new life and the new community that has been made possible through the resurrection, a resurrection that for Sabrino is a vindication of the innocent victim, showing that God has shown partiality throughout history in the Hebrew scriptures with liberating the Hebrew slaves from enslavement in Egypt, and then with the resurrection that Jesus conquers sin and death uh, with the resurrection, showing God, God takes the side of the poor and the oppressed. And this is God's triumph over sin and injustice. This sounds really nice, but as Sabrina points out, there is also a conflict implied in the reign of God between the reign of God and the anti-reign of God. So this conflict between what God makes possible in and through us and the ways that humans fail to receive and respond, the misuse of, of free will, the presence of evil, the anti-reign of God, which is injustice, or idolatry. And so for Sabrino, he sees idolatry in the riches of the world, in the ways that people might cling to security or status or privilege or power, which ultimately keeps them from being unfree. And so at root of the reign of God is this question, you know, to go back to Ronner, this fundamental option, which asks each and every one of us, are we, are we living for God with how we use free will? Are we envisioning ourselves as friends of God and as partners with God in trying to respond to God? initiative in our time and place, in our social milieu, to use our free will in a way that brings good news to the poor, liberation from oppression. And while there's this proclamation dimension to the reign of God, there's also a dimension that requires praxis, that we roll up our sleeves and get to work so that we create the conditions to affirm human dignity, to liberate people to enjoy freedom, and not just freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom for the common good, for the collective flourishing of all, which is why this comes with the partiality of the preferential option for the poor and the vulnerable, and why the reign of God is, is good news for the poor, because it, it means that they will be set free, or they will have the opportunity to set themselves free from whatever keeps them from being able to exercise the free will that, that God has in mind for them. So for Sabrino, if we're going to be attentive and responsive to the reign of God in our midst, if, if we're going to try to do our part to participate in this radical conflict between the reign of God and the anti-reign of God, it requires that we draw near the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed in the spirit of accompaniment, 
solidarity and friendship. It's it's not just about becoming proximate to the poor, but it also means challenging and changing the power differential, taking the crucified people down from their crosses so that they aren't continually in a position of exploitation or marginalization. So to, to ask ourselves those kind of social analysis questions of who's making the decisions, who's benefiting from them and who's suffering from them. And, you know, in all of these ways, I think that this is how discipleship invites us to consider our measure of availability, that for Sobrino, Jesus models the kind of faith in God, the trust and availability in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that we should aspire to, that that really allows, creates the conditions for human freedom, to entrust ourselves in the unfolding work of the reign of God, to make ourselves available to the movement of the Holy Spirit, and to combat the idols that keep ourselves and other people from being free, to be attentive and responsive to the inbreaking of the reign of God, already here in our midst, but not yet fully realized. The second half of Sabrino's chapter deals with the systematic concept of the reign of God, but it kind of leads to the question, where do we get the systematic concept of the reign of God? And Sabrino says, we're not going to find it in full, at least in the Bible, and that we have Jesus's uh, statements, like Marcus mentioned, the Beatitudes, we have Jesus's signs, we have the various parables of the kingdom of God, but can we get a systematic concept of the reign of God from that? Uh, Sabrino does not think that we're going to find that program. So given that that's the case, what is to be done? And here's Sabrino cites Boff. He quotes, the gospel invites us to creative fantasy, to the elaboration of ideologies sprung not from some a prioristic quantity, but from an analysis of and the challenges of a situation with a view to a project of liberation. I think given that Boff quote, what Sabrino is saying is that we do have the gift of the Holy Spirit with all of its power and creativity, and we have the signs of the times before us, the realities of our historical moment. And so it's the job of Christians, the church, to put these two together, to discern with the Holy Spirit the path that we are to take in our situation. And in a bit, Sabrino does offer some premises that serve as guideposts along the path of building the reign of God. But he kind of pauses before he gets into that to go into this traditional already not yet eschatological formulation. And according to this idea that we often hear in theological discourse, the reign of God is both already here and not yet here. And that is, of course, a bit confusing. And Sabrino hopes to clarify that a bit, showing in what sense the rain is already here and in what sense it's not yet here. And he distinguishes three senses, two in which the reign of God is already here and one not yet. And he says it's already in terms of its mediator, which is Jesus Christ, in that Jesus Christ was the one definitive inaugurator of the rain. Jesus Christ has come in the incarnation. And yes, there are other maybe lowercase mediators who come and go throughout 
throughout history, but even they are measured by the standard of Christ. And there's no greater liberator to come than Jesus, and Jesus has already come. So in that sense, the reign of God already, but also the reign of God already in terms of its signs, because alongside the person of Jesus, there were accompanying signs. As John's gospel refers to them, Jesus healed the sick, exercised demons, fed the hungry, raised the dead. And we humans continue to do many of these things. And wherever there is healing and feeding and giving of drink and housing, there already is a sign of the reign of God. And then third, however, and maybe most importantly, is that in terms of its mediation or its realization, the reign of God is most definitely not yet. And Sabrino clarifies that it's especially not yet in terms of the reality of the third world. There's too much poverty, exploitation, and violence to baselessly assert that God's reign is here. So the the oppressed who look around and see misery, they're not going to say that this is the reign of God. The book of Romans says that the reign of God is justice and peace. And how can we look at this world of injustice and war and call it the reign of God and God's will is not being done in those ways? So in summary, in the person of Jesus Christ and in the signs, the reign of God is here, but not yet in our concrete historical situation, particularly not in the colonized world. And then Sabrino goes into these three guideposts that will help us to build the reign of God, uh, determining what it is. And the first is this basic premise which is the primacy of the reality of the poor, or maybe just the preferential option for the poor. And citing Juan Luis II, he calls it an epistemological premise. And here, I think what he means is that there's a, a preference for the thought of the poor, both about the Bible and then the thought of the poor about reality in general. So I think here of something like Ernesto Cardenal's El Evangelio en Solentiname, where he's reading the Bible with a group of peasants in Nicaragua. And the reading that they're going to have of the Bible is not necessarily the same reading that you would get from a group of oligarchs who maybe meet in a penthouse in Managua for their weekly uh, Bible study. So we're bringing with us to the Bible, of course, our experiences, our lived reality that helps us to interpret what's on the page. And the interpretation that we're going to get is going to differ depending on what experiences we're bringing. And so the preference option for the poor shows a preference for the reading that the poor give of the Bible. And this is a biblical premise in the sense that the good news is for the poor, right? Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he comes to bring good news to the poor. And so it makes sense that the reading of the poor of their good news would be given a preferential option. And he says that this preference is not just a matter of method of, you know, listen to the poor for their story, their interpretation of reality is primary. That's of course true, but that also liberationists should feel with the poor and allow the reality of the poor to change them. Sabrino writes, quote, we one must allow oneself to be affected radically by the reality of the poor, allow the poor to penetrate oneself with ultimacy and without conditions, end quote. And I think here of one of my favorite quotes of St. Alberto Hurtado, my Jesuit patron in the Society of Jesus for whom I took my vow name, he says that the suffering of the poor should make me sick. And I think that there is certainly something 
to that, that Jesus is moved with compassion. You know, he looks upon the poor masses who are hungry before he is to multiply the loaves and the fishes. And, and so too, the liberationist Christian should feel this compassion for the poor and should let the reality of the poor penetrate oneself. And the next premise that Sabrino speaks about is hope. And he considers hope in a dialectical way. What he means by that is that in order for there to be hope, there has to be a bad situation that is causing one to hope for something better, right? So if we have everything that we want, what are we hoping for? Nothing. But if there's a lack, since there's a lack, there's a hope uh, that that lack would be resolved. And for the oppressed, this bad situation is the anti-reign. It is this oppression, injustice, inequality. And ultimately, the anti-reign for the poor means the prospect of an early death. And Gustavo Gutierrez would speak about poverty as, you know, how do you know that there's poverty? It's those who die before their time. And I think too, I was just curious and maybe stunned by that, uh, that Sabrino mentions that. And I, I went to look at the life expectancy of uh, different places in the world and how, you know, in the United States, I was looking that it was uh, 79 years old. And then I looked to uh, Haiti as Haiti has been in the news recently and 64. And so there's a 15 year gap there. Then uh, I was looking you know, around the world at different places. Um, also in the news uh, recently, uh, Somalia, 57 years is the life expectancy there. And I found also that Nigeria, uh, 54. And so you see this very real, what Sabrino is speaking about here, citing Gutierrez is very real that in many parts of the colonized world, it bears out. People are dying before their time. And that is the anti-reign right there. He also quotes that for the poor to live right now would be as much of a miracle as to live after death, uh, end quote. And that is a really stunning quote. And thinking about this in terms, I was just uh, before recording, speaking to Marcus about this, that I think before I really learned about the reign of God, uh, my basic theological understanding of Christianity had to do with death and resurrection and maybe afterlife, that maybe the key thing with Christianity is that Jesus Christ destroyed death so that, you know, maybe one day when I die, when I'm 80 or 85 or however long <laughs> I might live, then, you know, I will now live forever. And how that is the way that I think many people um, look at it who maybe have share, you know, my privilege and my background. Uh, Juan Luis Segundo used to speak of the sense that maybe for the European, the big question is, uh, is it atheism or faith? And there's kind of that existential problem is that which um, shapes the reality of the, the Christian in the Western world. But for many in the colonized world amongst the oppressed, it's that quote that Sabrino says is, is true. It's for me to live today is basically what I'm asking of our Lord. Give us this day our daily bread, that visceral sense of God, I want to live. And of course, there's no denial of the afterlife. There's a great hope in the afterlife as well, but that there's a deep concern. Am I going to wake up tomorrow? Am I going to be able to have a house at the end of this week? Um, am I going to be able to feed 
need my children? You know, is a bullet going to end my life or, or the life of my child within the next week? You know, so that was those are the concerns. In this sense, the enemy is not so much death in this case, but the enemy is the anti-rain. It's those conditions that are causing the early death. The third premise is praxis. And briefly, what Sabrino is getting at is, is something that Marcus touched on a little bit, which is the gratuity of the reign of God. This is a gift. So Jesus loved us first, right? Jesus looks at our reality and goes into our situation. And the gift of the incarnation is huge. St. Ignatius of Loyola and the spiritual exercises, the sushi pay, God has given all to us. And then we desire to make a return. God gifts us love and and then we make a return of love. So our building up of the kingdom, our desire to build up the kingdom, again, is not something that we primarily do alone. It's something that's a gift from God with which we collaborate. And when we do that, when we do that collaboration, there will be signs that emerge against us, right? Because as we start making those steps of building the reign of God, those proprietors of the anti-reign are not going to go down easy, right? Their, their privileges, their power, their wealth, they're going to try to cling to those things as much as possible as Jesus denounces the rich and, and says, right, right, woe to the rich after the Beatitudes and Luke's gospel, as Jesus uh, destroys the merchants in the temple, part of this vast system of collaboration between the Roman Empire and uh, the authorities of Jesus's time, there's going to be a reaction against that, which of course leads to Jesus's imprisonment, uh, torture, and death. Sabrino finishes with a systematic uh, concept of the reign of God as primarily that which secures life, and then after that, the life in abundance. And so first, the reign of God is a reign of life. Just as we were speaking about on uh, our previous episode here with Ignacio Eacaria on utopia and prophecy, the idea that there's that table. And right now, the poor many times have to feed from the scraps of the table. You know, the rich are able to satisfy themselves with many luxuries, um, and the poor are left with the scraps that fall from the table. But in the reign of God, everyone will have a place at that table. And the centerpiece of that table will precisely be the means for the sustaining of life for the masses. So Sabrino concludes with, if we are to put the reign of God first, what does that mean for other parts of theology? Systematically, as we move through, what does it mean for uh, how we understand Christ? What does it mean for how we understand the church? And just to say briefly, he, he speaks about the resurrection and how does having the idea of the reign of God first, how does that influence then our understanding of the resurrection? And he decides to speak then of the resurrection in terms of a confirmation of the truth and the project of Jesus, and that Jesus comes in order to establish the reign of God, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for doing that, you know, Jesus is killed. And so the question becomes, you know, how is this project going to continue? And and the project continues. God says, no, I want this project to continue. And so I'm going to raise Jesus from the dead. And not only that, after I raise Jesus from the dead, I'm going to give my Holy Spirit to the church so that the church can continue the project that Jesus initiated, establishing the reign of God. So that will conclude our, our summary of this amazing chapter by John Sabrino on the centrality of the reign of God. 
So David, I have a couple questions for you. And, and I have to say, when I was reading this reflection by Sabrina on the central position of the reign of God, I was really taken with his passage on how the the reign appears the reign of God appears for some as bad news, that this is this is not welcome news for everyone. And Sabrina reflects that the anti-reign of God appears with greater radicality in many circumstances that we find ourselves, that the anti-reign of God is actively militating against the reign of God. And Sabrina provides a couple of, uh, of examples, the numberless persecutions, murders, and martyrdoms of the poor who seek liberation and of those who accompany them demonstrate this clearly. Practice then helps us comprehend with a radicality not otherwise attainable that the anti-reign really exists. And upon reflection, I had trouble identifying any kind of magisterial document, any kind of papal teaching on the anti-reign of God. And looking through the work of Pope Francis and Pope Benedict XVI and John Paul II, I, I really couldn't find much discussion of the anti-reign. The, the closest I could come to was Pope John Paul II's discussion of the culture of death. I did, however, think of Bishop Mark Seitz's pastoral letter from 2019, Night Will Be No More, where he stated that, quote, racism is a sign of the anti-reign and baptism and the Eucharist are the graced gate gateway to a fully reconciled humanity, end quote. So in light of this dearth of references to the anti-reign of God and, and kind of the church's failure to talk about the anti-reign appearing with such great radicality, my question for you was, how do you think the anti-reign of God could be a helpful concept for grasping sin as original, personal, and social, especially in the face of unjust inequalities and suffering caused by social sins like racism, sexism, poverty, violence, and ecological devastation. Yeah, Marcus, thank you for that question. Huge one. And I want to respond in three points. First, I took a look at Medellin and Puebla to see if they speak about the anti-reign, and they don't I, I, at all. Curiously, um, that's not a term that's used in either of those documents. And I do, second, I do think that speaking about like John Paul II's culture of death, it is rather appropriate. I think of Ignacio Eacaria, he speaks about sin in terms of that which leads to death. You know, and we see even in the original sin moment, there's that connectivity between sin and death from the beginning, right? That if they were to eat from this tree, that it would lead to death. And so, so I do think that that's a great way to speak about it, understanding the anti-reign as uh, the culture of death. Maybe we could say that the culture of death is the ideological apparatus of the, the anti-reign. But I think that the anti-reign is rather appropriate as far as language, just in terms of its imperial connotations, because we think of a reign and we can think of maybe, a you know, kings, queens, um, different forces throughout history that have reigns, uh, empires. And we see that the anti-reign is very much so connected to the imperial history of the world. It is very saddening to me to think about. It's almost stunning to think about the fact that the 
religion of Jesus, the message of Jesus, this gospel of life, the gospel of liberation, how that gospel spread through the ancient world, through the Middle Ages, into Europe, Northern Africa, different parts of Asia. But really, for so many people, Christianity is, unfortunately, but also just synonymous with Europe. Even some theologians love to highlight the fact that in God's providence through Europe that Christianity spread to the world. But of course, we see here how it's France, Spain, Portugal, Belgium, these Catholic countries that colonized Africa, that colonized the uh, Americas as well, and how many of the origins, you know, we think of uh, slavery in the United States. I know that Olga uh, Seura uh, mentions in her book on the, the church and the Black Lives Matter movement that really it was through the Catholic Church that slavery established itself first in the United States. And so you see this deep interconnectedness between the anti-reign, this kind of imperial authority, and and the church, the way that we think of the Antichrist too, the one who disguises uh, himself maybe as a Christ, and how you know this is precisely what has happened throughout imperial history. Now, think of the United States, you know, which considers itself again to be in many ways a Christian country, and just how much damage has been done uh, throughout the world. That we, you know, we are Christian country would be the one to drop the uh, atomic bombs. That you know we would be the one responsible for these multiple coups throughout the the nineteenth, twentieth, and twenty first centuries. And so I think, of course, it's almost like you can see the job of a theologian to work out this concept of the anti-reign. I think maybe even of Hinklemert's book, The Ideological Weapons of Death, which does well to go into how there's maybe a linking between the anti-reign and, of course, capitalism and the way that, that cap capitalism kind of is anti anti-human and dehumanizes and commodifies the human person. So yeah, those are some initial thoughts on that. What would you say to that question, Marcus? I'd love to hear your thoughts on the anti-reign and kind of what, what its theological meaning might be and kind of an absence or void of people really talking about it in official documents. My sense in the classroom with students is that they were trained to think of sin as breaking rules or coloring outside the lines and it, their offenses against God. And I think it's worth pointing out that if we take seriously this idea that we're created in the image and likeness of the divine, and the divine is triune, you know, this communion of love that is offered, received, and returned, that that sin should be understand uh, should be understood as breaking the bonds of communion with God and with one another. And so, for me to think about the anti-reign or or what's what isn't good news, especially for the poor, the marginalized, and the oppressed? I think it's really important for, for us to think about how we do participate in the anti-reign of God when we misuse our freedom or when our use of freedom constrains the freedom of others. You know, to think about the ways that we benefit from the exploited labor of other people, whether they're migrant workers or working in a sweatshop, you know, they're the people who are trafficked. And so I think when we try to imagine individual agents as sinful, we can maybe be led toward a sense of guilt or shame without necessarily doing the social or structural analysis to Im imagine how our beliefs and values and, and habits are being shaped by, as you pointed out, unjust systems like capitalism that depersonalizes and degrades and exploits without necessarily thinking about how that, that shapes our attitudes and actions. And so 
I do think that there's a lot of value in turning our attention to the anti-rain that is always and everywhere around us because of the pervasive and pernicious effects of sin, and that these are problems that that can't just be solved by individuals who try to make good choices. You know, that that it's not just about turning the faucet off when I'm brushing my teeth or turning the light off when I when I leave the room, you know, like even recycling or going to the local farmer's market. It, I think so often we we leave these problems to the level of the individual. And what I appreciate in reading Sabrino is that he kind of tries to hold together the personal and the social. And thinking that, yes, we we do have a personal response to the gratuity of the reign of God. Absolutely. And yet, as an ecclesial body, the entire church should be working to combat the, the anti-reign and to both proclaiming and doing the praxis involved in responding to God's initiative of the reign of God. And so to think about how we respond on the individual, the interpersonal, and the institutional levels, I think is crucial for thinking about this. I also think that one of the problems with the way that the church talks about sin is it it kind of points to absolution for the sins as the way to redress the harm that's been done. You know, if we only think of sin as an offense against God, and we don't think about the harm caused on our neighbor or ourselves, to think seriously about the anti-reign of God means that while it's great to go to the sacrament of reconciliation and to receive absolution for our sins, that part of our penance, you know, should be the sorrow and sacrifice for the harm that we are responsible because of, you know, our ignorance, our indifference, or an action in the face of human misery, or unjust inequality, or violence, or ecological devastation. And to, to think about what we need to do to lament and atone for the way we have cooperated, either by sins of omission or sins of commission, in perpetuating the anti-reign of God. So I, I would like to see more theologians, more church officials invoke this term of, of the anti-reign of God, because I, I think it is helpful for us to see that this is bigger than just individual sin. And so we've got work to do on the structural and and systematic levels so that we can bring about full, authentic, and integrated liberation for all. Awesome. And I'll pose a question to you now, uh, Marcus. So uh, growing up Catholic in the Chicago suburbs, I heard a lot about the resurrection of Christ, but not very much about the reign of God. And in fact, before studying liberation theology in college, I had always thought that the reign of God was a more obscure aspect of Christianity. Um, Was your experience similar? I I thought maybe before you mentioned that maybe it was in college that, or, or maybe studying in graduate school that you kind of first really got into the reign of God. But what did you learn about the reign of God growing up, if anything? And then maybe as an attachment to that question, in your dealing with students, what maybe what are the dominant assumptions or that maybe students have about what the reign of God or maybe they would know it as the kingdom of God is? Yeah, so thinking back to what it was like for me to learn about my faith as a as a kid, I, I thought a lot about the time that I spent as an altar server, being not just being at mass, being up on the altar at mass when I knew I had to be paying attention because if I had looked bored, that wasn't going to help anyone else pray. And so I, I did think about the you know the homilies that I could recall as a child that I think you know focus a lot on Matthew's gospel. You know, in, in, in chapter seven of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. And I can, I can still remember a homily that talked about this, you know, all the people who will 
claimed to be saved by Jesus Christ or say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And, you know, I'm, I'm in God's good graces or to say I'm baptized and, you know, that's enough. And I, I remember being challenged by the, by the pastor who was saying, it's, you know, it's not enough to have faith that we have to do the work of God's will to, to be received into the kingdom of heaven. And it, you know, in, in Matthew six, Jesus says again, that, you know, we should seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, which I later learned in graduate school. Every time we see the word righteousness in scripture, we have to understand that word is justice, that the that Greek word diakosine and its its various forms, it really means fidelity to the covenant in right relationship between God, self, and neighbor. And, and that's the definition of justice. You know, that, that this isn't anything to do with self-righteousness or purity, but that word means to, to seek first the kingdom of God and God's justice. And then, you know, everything will be given to us. And then the Beatitudes, you know, to take seriously these lines, people know the Ten Commandments. I don't know how well people really know and understand or to try to emulate the Beatitudes, but Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, that word should be justice, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As I, I thought more about how the kingdom of God was presented to me as a child, there was this praxic dimension. And that I, you know, maybe it didn't hit me then, you know, as a middle schooler. But now looking back, I'm really grateful that I was raised in a way that did see exactly what Sabrino writes here, that this is both about proclamation and praxis. Or as Sabrino says, this is about having an object of hope and then having the act of hoping, you know, which implies that we are witnesses, that there is reason to hope that the reign of God is here already in our midst. Uh, Sabrino says, the signs the poor hope for are those that already offer them a little life and enable them to hope that life is possible. And, and so I, what I appreciate about Sabrino is that he kind of adds that, that lens of partiality. This isn't just about good news to all, that, that is definitely part of it, but that there is the partiality on behalf of those who've been rendered socially insignificant, the non-persons, the people who don't believe that they count, matter, or belong. And as you pointed out, you know, in the words of Gustavo Gutierrez, the people who are forced to face a premature death because poverty is violence. And, and a premature death. And so I think that that's that's what I've been learning to think more about since grad school. And, you know, turning to the classroom now with students, I, I think they have more of an appreciation for the reign of God as something that is yet to come, you know, something that we await at the eschaton, something that is the object of our hope. But I don't know that they see that it implies that act of hoping, which, you know, hope is that that virtue that is the mean between extremes, between presumption and despair. So we don't presume 
that this is all figured out or all part of God's plan or that God will come in and save the day. But neither do we just throw up our hands and say, all hope is lost or what, what's the point? Why bother? There's no use. And so hope requires kind of that struggle, trusting in God to make good on God's promises, but also rolling up our sleeves as God's partners in the world to deliver on being good news for the poor, of, of being a, a sign of hope for those who have been rendered insignificant or non-persons wherever they may be found. And so that, that's what I really try to, to invite my students to reflect on and to discuss is what does it mean to be a sign of hope for those people who've been made to question their dignity or value or their worthiness? Those people who suffer in silence or think that they're all alone in, in suffering, uh, the people that are forced to f- endure exclusion, violence, and any unfreedom that we could think of. And, and that's what I really appreciate about reading Sabrino is this invitation to see this posture of gratitude move us into generous actions for and behalf for and with other people, especially those in greatest need. So I have, I have another question for you, David. Sometimes when I teach my students about theological anthropology, about being made in the image and likeness of God, they ask where the evidence for that is in a world marked by so much distrust, division, and degradation. When I was reading Sabrina's reflection on the reign of God, I found it striking that he's so clearly influenced by Rahner in viewing the incarnation as God's irrevocable commitment to humanity, as an act of God's permanent and prevailing solidarity with us. Sabrino says, you know, that the reign of God is essential and permanent, and it has never been revoked in subsequent history, just to kind of remind us that even though the the circumstances of life today might provide a lot of evidence for the anti-reign of God, that we can't lose hope in the reign of God. So I wanted to ask you, in the face of so many reasons to doubt or despair, where do you look for signs of the essential and permanent activity of the reign of God today? Yeah, I do think that there is oppression. We see it everywhere, but I think where where there is oppression, there's also resistance to oppression. And I think that is precisely where I find that essential and permanent activity of the reign of God in that resistance that arises wherever oppression also is found. And I think of in one of my trips to Honduras uh, with Radio Progreso, uh, going to a community where a hydroelectric power plant was going to be put in against the will of the people and how the people organized to block the street with their bodies so that the tractors and you know different instruments that were going to dig out this hydroelectric uh, power plant in this river that they could not pass through and I they would take turns organizing each other you know maybe they have 200 people in the community and always there's going to be 10 to 20 people there so they're taking turns every day. And I remember going back about, you know, 90 days after my original visit and finding that they were still there and that their numbers had only grown. And then I remember asking uh, three and a half years later, someone from Radio Progresso, you know, how is the resistance going there? What ended up happening? And the person said, oh, they're still there three and a half years later. And then I checked again a few months ago and they were still there. I haven't checked more recently, but I just think that that is amazing that it's true that there's the force of people who, when they are organized and when they have a firm commitment to resistance, they make it happen. And so you see how 
And and the, the beauty of Radio Progresso, right? Who's there accompanying, reporting on this event and making sure that people know that the people of, of Gilamito are not going to be to be defeated. So I think that, yeah, that's that's precisely where I find it is in those resistance movements that continue uh, in the face of danger and even continue for, for many years that uh, there the spirit of God is and the gates of hell will not uh, prevail against it. And yeah, I'm curious to hear your answer uh, to that one, Marcus. Where do you find the permanent and essential activity of the reign of God? There are so many, you know, and, and this is exactly what Sabrino says. He writes, practice reveals what the reign is, you know, that it's in the doing of it. And so just listening to you about Radio uh, Progresso, to, to think about those examples uh, here, you know, is thinking of the the, the water protectors at Standing Rock and, and the work of indigenous leaders to protect their land from extraction, whether it's for you know oil drilling or fracking. And I thought of Little Miss Flint, uh, Mari Kopany, who's you know 14 years old, but who who wouldn't let the world forget about all the lead poisoning in Flint, Michigan. Even the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, that was a hashtag that started uh, after the murder of Trayvon Martin, you know, to say that Black lives do matter even in the face of extrajudicial murder, uh, you know, in, in the streets of the cities in, in the United States and the, the failure to hold police officers accountable for these extrajudicial killings. Certainly, I think about my students, you know, in a lot of my classes, instead of having students write a final paper, I assign them a final project where they have to advocate on behalf of a cause. And when I first started out, you know, they would pick up causes like trying to advocate for people experiencing homelessness or dealing with substance abuse uh, or hunger or tr trying to uh, advance ecological preservation and conservation and sustainability. And, and I thought it was really interesting to see that in my more recent classes, they're focusing more and more on mental health and trying to reduce the stigma around mental health mental health, especially in a population where you know, we're just seeing skyrocketing numbers of anxiety, uh, depression, and social isolation. And I, in fact, just this week, I showed a suicide prevention PSA that was inspired by one of my lectures where I, you know, I have my students spend time with Genesis 1, where God creates everything and sees that it is good. And God creates human beings in God's own image and likeness and finds that we are very good. And I ask my students to write very good on the palm of their hand in the hope that at some point they would see that throughout the day and be reminded that their dignity is inherent. It's not earned or lost. And also to hope that they might see that every person they encounter also has inherent dignity. I always think of that line from C.S. Lewis, next to the blessed sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And some students were inspired by that and, and asked people to write very good on their hand and, and to remind that, you know, remind each other that they are very good and that they are not alone, even uh, in the face of suicide ideation. You know, suicide claims the lives of about 1,100 college students every year. And it's one of the leading causes of death for young people in our country. And to take seriously, you know, that practice reveals what the reign of God is, then I think anytime that we're reaching out and forging connection between people, standing up for human dignity and human rights, and building inclusive and equitable communities, those are all examples of the reign of God in our midst. Another question for you, Marcus. If we were to assign ultimacy to the reign of God, then how might it change the way that we experience Mass? Or what are the liturgical uh, implications of a reign of God theology? 
I love this question and, I, and I've written about it, uh, which is maybe why I love this question, because it's something that I cared enough to write about. I think for a lot of people, parishes are places where sacraments get dispensed. And then you show up when it's time to fulfill your Sunday obligation or on a holy day of obligation. We, we kind of treat mass almost as if it's a commodity, you know, where we go to get our fill up uh, when we're fun, when we're running low, or we, we, we treat it in a commodity in a different way, like, you know, almost like a Yelp review where I will only belong to a parish where there's good music or good homilies, where I get something out of it. And often I hear from students who say they stopped going to mass because they stopped getting anything out of it. And we've got to find a way to interrupt this paradigm where we see ourselves as service recipients and parish staff or priests as service providers. That, that's so foreign to the, the actual experience of ritual, which, you know, ritual is the language of community, right? It reminds us who we are and what we believe in. And it actually does the work of being community, right? This is exactly why we gather as St. Augustine said, to become what you receive, the body of Christ, right? The act of gathering remembers the body of Christ. And I think it's worth pointing out that the word liturgy, translated from the Greek, means the public work of the people, that this isn't something we show up to as spectators, that we should see ourselves as full and active participants, that we we bring something to that table, not just take something away from it. And, and I think that's a really important parallel with the reign of God, that yes, God God's, this is all about God's initiative, the gratuitousness that God gives us even more than we need, this super abundant grace that spills over from the incarnation into the Eucharist and pervades the entire world through the gift of God's grace. That should fill us with gratitude, with wonder and awe and reverence, and inspire us and motivate us to respond with that return gift of love. I, I really appreciated reading this text from Sobrino, where he quotes Gustavo Gutierrez and says, we are liberated in order to liberate. We are free to love, and that the reign of God is ultimately a practice of consciousness, a practice without hubris or pride, to wage revolution as one who's been forgiven. And liturgy is that practice, right, of, of remembering what God has done in history, God's what God has promised, to ask forgiveness for sins, to prepare ourselves to receive the Eucharist so that we can be Eucharist in the world, to bring our petitions. Uh, although I have to say in a lot of a lot of masses I've been to, it sounds, you know, the way that we write the petitions, it sounds like, you know, for our veterans or for the homeless or for the hungry or for the poor, or for the people in Haiti dealing with a hurt earthquake or the people in Louisiana dealing with a hurricane. We pray to the Lord, you know, as if these are problems that we bring to God and say, all right, God, do something about these problems. Problems. I, I think we, we have to learn how to raise our petitions in a way that, that asks for us to be changed, you know, so that we have the courage and the compassion and the commitment to do the work of healing or, uh, and of helping so that we really can be liberated to liberate other people, that we can make ourselves freer to love God, self, neighbor, and creation. Sabrina, when he, when he talks about this new creation that is made possible through the resurrection, he spells that out, you know, the, the new eyes to see what without God could not be seen, or the new ears to hear what without God could not be heard. It can also be expressed with the new hands to do what without God could not be done. Every time we participate in liturgy, that we ask to be made new so that we, we can see it as a reset button to be reminded of what God is hoping from us and for us, to be given these new eyes to see, the new ears to hear, the new hands to do the work 
that is required to build up the reign of God. That is entirely God's initiative, but also remains incomplete unless and until we use our eyes and ears and tongues and hands to build up the reign of God in our midst. How about you? As someone who's in formation to become a priest and a presider at liturgy, I'd be interested in hearing your ideas for how you you hope to help make the reign of God manifest in liturgy, but also so that when people leave Eucharist, that they feel encouraged to do the work of building up the reign of God when they go out into the world or back to their families or workplaces or communities. For sure. I I think of especially my time in Honduras with Father Jack Warner, the director of the Jesuit Theater at uh, La Fragua in El, in El Progreso, Honduras. He would take me to a maybe Wednesday night mass that was in one of the neighborhoods, you know, because in Honduras, they have this parish model whereby there's like a central parish, but then there's also these little chapels in the neighborhoods. And I think that that is... Uh, it's so beautiful. So, you know, Jack would go to this tiny little chapel, San Antonio de Padua, and the people would just kind of walk from their houses over to the mass, you know, spilling in on the hour or five minutes or 10 minutes after the hour uh, into this little parish. And there it was, you know, rocking on a Wednesday, random Wednesday night. And I think it, it made me think of Pope Francis's line, you know, the, the pastor should smell like the sheep. And I see Jack, the the priest going to the people. And I think that that is absolutely huge. And I would want that to be part of my priestly ministry, God willing, one day would be the kind of pastor who, who goes to the people and does not wait in the church for the people to come, but proactively, you know, goes into the neighborhoods, into the barrio, right, in order to uh, be with the people. I think also, too, like Pope Francis, he has that line that he would send the seminarians out for a free day, and then he he would, you know, check to see their shoes as they would come back in, who had the dirty shoes at the end of the day. And then he would know, you know, who was spending time with the poor, who was going into the favelas to, to be with the people. And so I think that that's absolutely key, that if people aren't going to the church, the church has to go to the people. And I think that's what you see in, in Jesus. You know, you see Jesus on the move. He had no, no place to rest his head. It's not like he sat up shop, you know, under some tree and and then all the people came to visit him. He, you know, he went out to the people to be with them going from town to town. There's that mass where it's like Jesus who went about doing good. I think you see Jesus doing that. So I think that's absolutely key. I think the other thing is making a space for Spanish language liturgies. I think that you know, it's one of the things that I'm excited about in, in my one day priesthood would be that I have this immense gift, thanks be to God, of the ability to communicate in Spanish and how important and meaningful that is for Spanish-speaking Catholics throughout the United States. And that's why on the weekends here in Cincinnati, you know, I go to St. Clement Parish and help out with the Hispanic ministry there. Huge part of my week to spend time uh, with the folks there. Some, you know, occasionally we'll do home visits. You know, someone has a need, they're sick, they, they have, uh, you know, they're worried about their employment. I'm going to the home, praying a rosary with the people, um, whatever it is. So I think that that's totally key. And I try as much as possible to imitate Sabrino and Ea Correa and the great liberationist uh, priests who worked at the university during the week, but then in the weekends would go and spend time with, uh, with the people. That's so beautiful. 
So my last question for you, I've been, I've been thinking about the way that Sabrino claims that the poor are the point of departure for reading the signs of the times and for fleshing out what the reign of God is today. Then I wonder, as you read this, what does this mean for the non-poor? And does it imply a preferential option for the affluent because they aren't sharing in this same locus theologicus? I'll go back here to Gustavo Gutierrez and that chapter that he has in this book on poverty. And he speaks about poverty in three ways. There's the primary sense of material socioeconomic poverty. And then, of course, there's you know spiritual poverty and openness, uh, availability to do God's will. But then he also speaks of the poverty of solidarity. And I think that that's where we get into the address to the non-poor, because Jesus does encounter rich people <laughs> throughout the gospel. It's not as if, you know, he only, it seems like primarily, you know, he spends time with the poor and with the suffering. But of course, he is with uh, the tax collector. He's with Zacchaeus. He's with the rich young man. And it seems to me like, let's just take the two examples of the rich young man and Zacchaeus. There is a call to conversion, really, is what, what Jesus does when he encounters a rich person, right? He calls this person to convert to sell everything that they have and come and follow me and give to the poor. And in Zacchaeus's case, it's not even as if Jesus invites. I think it's just Zacchaeus says, I'm going to do it. You know, he has that encounter with Jesus and then says, I'm going to repay all of the people that I've wronged, you know, several times over and, and whatnot. So just in that meeting of Jesus, there's a call to conversion. And I would say it's maybe precisely i would imagine what what you and i are are struggling and wrestling with you know in our doing right in that we yeah come from a a, a place you know certain places of privilege you know we share a a Midwestern, you know, white background. We're both men, of course. And, 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 and so I think there, I feel that call. And I think that's why reading The Rich Young Man was such a, an influential passage in my own journey, seeing that this is what Jesus asks of someone like me. And I remember, in fact, reading that passage, and I was meant to write a report on Matthew. And I chose that passage to write my little report on in my Gospel of Matthew class at Wake. And I remember I was reading it as I was flying back from South Korea. And I was flying uh, Korea Air. I had gone to Korea for a spring break trip, just uh, spent a, a total week and a half in opulence, you know, and privilege and an opportunity like none would ever have to see uh, South Korea and, and, you know, extended party. So I, I think that that hit me, you know, as I was on this plane, thousands of miles up in the air, reading this passage and just thinking to myself, mm, is this the way that? I am called to live out my Christian faith. And that I think was a, a moment of conversion, you know, that eventually led to the time when I kind of got rid of many of my possessions in college and eventually was set up to become a Jesuit and, you know, now take that, that vow of poverty. So I think that absolutely there is a call here to the non-poor and the call is precisely to be in solidarity with the poor and to be, you know, maybe in our contemporary terms, to be allies of the poor and to throw one weight behind that project uh, of the poor for their own liberation. Yeah. How do you uh, feel about that question, Marcus? 
think you answered it beautifully. I really don't have much to add. Uh, you know, I, I think it is important to point out that Jesus met people where they were, uh, and he always preferred to bring people along rather than to send them away. And yet he made the conditions for discipleship clear so that if people felt like they couldn't take up their cross and follow him, then they were free to walk away. But I, I do appreciate your your personal reflection on you know how do we account for the the privilege and the power and the status that we enjoy and and who benefits and who suffers from the the status and privilege and power that we enjoy and. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate your your vision of allyship. I think I, I always go back to Gustavo, where he says the, the goal of solidarity is friendship, you know, and to, and to think about what does it mean to really cultivate friendship with people who are poor, marginalized, and oppressed, and to make their problems our own. And I think that's the invitation, you know, not just to think that that proximity will solve the problem, but that ultimately, if the, the problems of the poor become our problems, then we roll up our sleeves to try to change the power structures so that, uh, going back to Gustavo, the, in his words, the poor can be agents of their own destiny. And, and they're not just sitting around waiting for the, the people with privilege and power to do something to help them. And we want to finish our conversation here with some application points. You know, each of us has reflected on this reading and uh, how might we be able to apply it to our prayer and to our actions. So uh, go ahead, M Marcus, what have you thought for your application point? Yeah, so, so my application point is inspired by the very end of the passage uh, that you asked me to to sit with and uh, summarize. And, and I just want to read just a, a, a little snippet of it. So Sabrina writes, the theology of liberation proposes that the practice of the reign of God not only is an obvious ethical exigency, but is a hermeneutic principle for a knowledge of the reign of God and even for the knowledge of it as a gift. That practice and the adoption of the hope of the poor are concrete manifestations of the option for the poor that today bestow the ability to understand the reign of God. And so I think my application point really orbits around this question, how are we a sign of hope for the poor? For me, that, that means asking myself, you know, not only how I spend my free time or how I spend my money and what, what causes I donate, but how I vote the things that I prioritize in my family life and raising my children, what I expose them to, what I show them that we care about as a family. But I think too, I, you know, just to bring this to a concrete lens, it's also getting in the habit of contacting my elected officials and making sure that I'm advocating for causes that protect those who need the most protection, you know, whether it's a living wage or uh, a child tax credit or trying to help those people who have been subject to mass incarceration in our country. You know, the, the ban the box initiative that, that tries to get people to have the opportunity to apply for employment and housing without having to identify as someone who was previously incarcerated, because we know that the, the recidivism rates are so high and it's so difficult for persons who are re-entering society to be given a second chance when you know people just see they have a criminal record 
And it's almost impossible for them to have access to subsidized housing, to public transportation that will you know, not take hours and hours of their day and to try to land employment. So I, I think to, you know, to be a person of hope for the poor, the marginalized and the oppressed is to make sure that I am lifting my voice and, and advocating for and with people for whom you know, the system is, is stacked against them. And how about you? Yeah, I wanted to propose a point for prayer. And I think it's fitting just in the sense that we typically end with a prayer on the podcast. So consider a prayer that is inspired a bit by Sabrino's line that the rain is God's initiative. And we've been speaking about the gratuity, the free gift of the rain of God that especially comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the point of prayer is based on the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola, what Loyola calls, and as Jesuits, we often call the contemplation on the incarnation, which is using our imagination and prayer to think Think of the Trinity in maybe in the heavens, the fathers, the son, the Holy Spirit, looking upon the world, seeing the world in its great suffering, but also in its moments of joy. Ignatius speaks of, you know, some people laughing, some people crying, some people coming into the world, some people dying, but then also that preferential option for the poor, God looking upon the suffering of the poor, desiring to be with the poor in the overcoming of their suffering. And that decision that the Trinity makes when maybe Jesus uh, speaks up and says, Father, send me. I want to go to be with the people. I want to be with the oppressed. I want to be born into this world. And I want to begin the transformation of the world towards this reign of God that we've been speaking about today. And then, of course, Zoom, God sends the angel to Mary and Jesus is born into, into Palestine, right? Into a, a colonized part of the world uh, under one of, you know, one of the most formidable uh, empires that the world has seen, the Roman Empire. And that that was kind of the beginning, you know, of what we're, we're, we're talking about today in a way. You know, this seed, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, you know, that is planted in the ground and that flourishes so much so to the point where it's so big that the birds can nest and find a home. And so that is kind of the moment of the incarnation, that seed that is being planted. And now we are those branches, the church, and indeed all who ally ourselves together for the building of the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, that that is my point of prayer just to consider, I think in these next few days, you know, I myself will in my uh, time of prayer uh, be meditating on that and just thinking of, as, as you mentioned, Marcus, the uh, incarnation of God's abiding, you know, permanent decision to be with us, God with us, and that that was a decision that God made to ally God's self with us for the sake of the liberation of humanity humanity, especially uh, the oppressed. So <laughs> let's uh, give a thanks to Marcus Mesher for joining us on the Liberation Theology podcast to discuss this really incredible chapter on the centrality of the reign of God in Liberation Theology by uh, John Sabrino. Uh, thank you, Marcus. It was my pleasure. Thank you, David. Mm -hmm.